Well, good morning. It's good to see you all. My name is Tim. I serve as one of the pastors here at Grace Point Church. Uh, my wife and I, we were able to take some time off in June, uh, so we were able to get away and just uh, spend some time with one another and with family, uh, but we're glad to be back here with our family here. Uh, before we jump into today's message, i got a quick announcement for you. Uh, many of you know that each fall and each spring, we kind of launch out our community cohorts. Now, if you're new to Grace Point Church, you're like, what is a community cohort? Well, community cohorts are our relational learning environments. These are opportunities for us to grow in our knowledge uh, of Jesus and knowledge of who he is and what he's done in our life. And so we have uh, four cohorts that we're going to be launching out this fall. Uh, we have Exploring God with Heart and Mind. That's going to be a really good course on theology. So if you're really wanting to dive deep into scripture, that's going to be a great uh, cohort for you. Uh, we have Learning to Love and Read the Bible for Women. Ladies, this one is just for you. Uh, this is the third or fourth time that we have offered this cohort. It has been filled every time. It is a wonderful cohort. Uh, so make sure that you uh, go and sign up for this. And also our re refuge recovery groups. Uh, we can't say enough about how impactful those are in the lives of people here at Grace Point Church. And also for the very first time, we are launching out our grief recovery group. So if you are here and you have suffered a significant loss in your life, uh, then this group is going to be for you. Uh, so if you want more information, you go to our website and you can find out more information there. And you can also go ahead and start signing up for them now. Now, let's dive in. Uh, one of my very first jobs uh, right out of high school was I worked at a Blockbuster video. You might remember video stores. Yeah, those ancient things. Um, but working at a video store, uh, it made sense that they wanted us to know a lot about movies. So to encourage that, they gave us five free movie rentals a week. Uh, and so uh, I used the excuse, well, this is for work. And so I was young, I had no responsibility. So I took full advantage of watching all five movies each week. Uh, in fact, I had a roommate at the time, and so he had five and my five. And so we actually got 10. But... Uh, <clears throat> One of my favorite movies of all times uh, that I watched during that time and still is today is The Shawshank Redemption. Who's seen that, that movie? Great movie. If you haven't seen it, go check it out. Um, but I'm a sucker for movies like The Shawshank Redemption, uh, where the good guy in the end always wins, right? Like he's struggling through some adversity or through some suffering in their life. Uh, but in the end, the good guy wins. Good wins over evil. And so if you're not familiar with the movie, it's about a guy named Andy Dufresne, played by Tim Robbins. He is a banker who's wrongfully convicted of killing his wife. And so he's sentenced to Shawshank Prison. Uh, I'll spare you all the details, but while he's in prison, he, he meets a few friends, uh, but also he meets a corrupt warden and corrupt prison guards uh, and finds out that the, uh, the criminals were actually not just in prison, but they were actually running the prison as well. Uh, so the corrupt prison warden finds out that Andy's a, a banker and a financial genius, so he enlists his help to start uh, laundering the, his corrupt money through the prison system. Well, unbeknownst to the warden, uh, Andy Dufresne during that time, he uh, starts creating himself a, his, uh, a new ID and starts setting, him up, setting himself up financially. So in the off chance that one day he ever gets released, uh, or in this case, he would actually go on to eventually escape. And so eventually at the end of the movie, Andy Dufresne escapes from prison and the corrupt warden and these corrupt 
prison guards, they finally get what they deserve. They get what's coming to them. And I just love stories like this that were good conquers over evil or uh, sufferings are made right. And I think there's something in us that longs for, that loves movies like that because there's something in us that, that longs for wrongs to be made right. Like, we, we, we hate injustice in the world. We don't like suffering. Uh, and we, when we see movies like this or we hear stories like this, it resonates with us because in our own sufferings, we maybe bring about some hope that one day that there too can be an end to our suffering. If there's one thing in life that I know besides death and taxes... Um, it is that all humans, no matter who you are, there will be times in your life in which you are going to suffer. You're going to go through hard times. Uh, Jesus promises us this in John chapter 16, verse 33. Uh, he says, in this world, you will have trouble. Who in here would, would raise your hand like, Tim, right now I have trouble. I'm just going through a season in my life where I'm suffering. Uh, I feel like, uh, like the world is against me. Uh, I, I'm just really going through it right now. Who would raise their hand just be honest and say, that's me right now? Okay, I see you. Uh, who would be willing to say, Tim, I'm not suffering right now, but there has been seasons in my life where I have really gone through it. Like I lost a job. You lost a spouse, uh, like, you, like you're struggling financially. Uh, just whatever it is, you feel like, you know, I'm just being so beat down right now. It feels like I can't put one foot in front of the other. Who would say, like, I've gone through a season like that? Okay, just about everybody in here has raised their hand. If you have not raised your hand, um, let me just say, suffering is coming. Hard times are coming. <laughs> they will. It is a universal human fact. But I want you to notice what Jesus says right next in that text. He says, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And so in our text today, what we are going to do is we are going to look at how Jesus has overcome. So if you got your Bibles, turn with me over to 1 Peter chapter 3, we're going to pick up in verse 18. Now, if you don't have a Bible, we say this each and every week that you need a Bible. So if you don't have one and you would like one, you can go out to Center Point. Uh, there's free Bibles out there. There's also tables to my left and to my right. Uh, that would be your left and your right. Uh, there's, there's Bibles right there. You are free to just get up right now and go pick one up and just take it. It is yours. Now, we are going through this book or this letter in the New Testament of 1 Peter, and it was written by a guy named Peter. Uh, and if you're just joining us, what's, what's going on here is Peter is writing this letter to a group of churches, uh, and he's getting ready to, to tell them how they should live their lives as people who are being persecuted for their faith in Jesus. And he's not only in giving them instructions of how they should live out in light of suffering and persecution, he's also writing to encourage them in their faith. Uh, and so today, I hope this is that part where you are encouraged in your faith. Now, this section of text that we've been going through, uh, we, we, we have really, we've divided it up into two parts. Last week, Andrew kind of taught part one. This week, we're going to kind of continue and teach part two. Uh, but last week, Andrew taught, uh, and we learned that everybody goes through suffering. 
And we all suffer for various reasons. He said that we, sometimes we suffer because of our sin. Like we suffer the consequences of our own sin. Uh, we suffer the consequences of making dumb decisions and dumb choices and dumb actions. Whoever has made a dumb decision in here? Okay, everybody, should, your hands should be up, everybody. <clears throat> Sometimes we, we suffer just because of the fallenness and brokenness of the world, right? Um, who in here has suffered because someone else made a dumb decision, right? Okay, yep, we should all have our hands up there as well. Um, and probably the hardest one to get through is that we suffer because of other people's sin. Where people that we are in close relationship, in close proximity to, uh, they have uh, decided to sin against God. And because we are in close proximity relationally to them, we reap and, and feel the weight and consequences of their own sinful actions and choices. And this is the reality of no matter if you follow Jesus or not, we all experience these three types of suffering. Uh, but, but Andrew also introduced us to this fourth category of suffering, that if you are Jesus, you are Jesus follower, if you're a Christian, that you will experience this fourth category. It's almost like, okay, when I follow Jesus, I'm signing up for an extra category of suffering. Uh, and it's this category is that if you give your life to Jesus and you're truly living your life for him, then you will experience suffering because of your faith. And we see that happening more and more in the culture that we live in. It used to be that um, in culture, uh, cultural values and biblical values were mostly aligned. But as we go on, we see cultural values and biblical values are, are taking a sharp turn from one another. And it's getting harder and harder to hold fast and stand firm in our biblical, biblically held beliefs and not suffer persecution because of that. Last week, also, Andrew, he showed us how, in light of all of this suffering, how we are to respond. But this week, in part two of this text, Peter, I want us to begin to, to see that Peter proclaims victory over suffering. So I want to say something about our text right up front. Uh, you heard it read a few moments ago. Uh, there's some weird things going on in this text. Uh, Peter's talking about spirits in prison, and then he makes this leap to Noah, and you're like, all right, what's, what's going on? What's happening here? Uh, well, this is probably one of the most confusing texts in the entire New Testament. Uh, Martin Luther has famously written about this, this text. He says, a wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the whole New Testament, so that I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. He says, I cannot understand and I cannot explain it, and there has been no one who has explained it. So this morning, with the help of the Holy Spirit, we're going to dive into the very deep end of the pool in this text, and we're going to see if we can't understand what is happening here in this text. All right, so 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. You guys ready? All right. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. 
Now, we know from Scripture that Jesus was uh, fully God, but he was also fully man, right? We get that. that, that Jesus was God incarnate. Jesus came down in the flesh, and we're not saying that God, Jesus was 50% man, 50% God. No, he's 100% divine, 100% human, man. And since we know that suffering is an aspect of humanity, we know that Jesus himself was not exempt from suffering. In fact, what makes Jesus so special to us is that he is, what makes him able to comfort us is that he understands every aspect of the suffering that you have experienced. One of the worst things about suffering is that it, it feels so lonely and isolating, doesn't it? And it feels so lonely and isolating because when we are going through it, it really feels like we are the only person, people that have ever experienced this type of suffering. And really, maybe if we, we know that other people have experienced what we're experiencing, nobody really understands the depths how we are experiencing them. Uh, and even in that moment, even though you are surrounded by people, hopefully, that love you and care for you and who are trying to comfort you, there's this big question and doubt in your mind of like, do you really understand the depths of what I'm experiencing here? Can you really empathize with what I am experiencing feeling? Like, I, I know you, you, you feel sorry for me and, and you want to take away my pain, but do you really understand? So we feel so alone in that. But this isn't Jesus. Jesus knows exactly what you are going through because he himself has personally endured every piece of suffering humanity has ever experienced. Look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 through 17. He says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, <clears throat> but he helps the offspring of Abraham, that, I mean, us, those who have been saved, those who are, who are in Christ. Therefore, he, has been, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. The writer of Hebrews is saying like he had to be made like us in every way so that he might be merciful and faithful to us. And he, and he experienced all of this, not so he could help angels, but to help us, those who are in Christ. And I want you to see that Jesus has suffered like we have suffered. But Jesus didn't just suffer so he could sympathize with us. He didn't suffer just so he could be like, okay, they're there. Like, it's, it's going to be okay. I know what you're going through. No, Jesus' suffering was unique. Jesus' suffering was unique in that it was substitutionary. He suffered once to end all of our suffering. Look at the text, verse 20. He says, for Christ suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That in the coming of the only righteous and perfect one, the only 
one that did not have a sinful bent to them, the only one who was perfect, this, this perfect one goes to the cross and broke the back of sin and suffering once and once and for all. And what he does on the cross is that he absorbs God's wrath towards sin, and then he brings you and I safely to the Father so that he absorbs my sin, he absorbs your sin, and he absorbs the sin of anyone who would ever come to him. So that way when we bring, he brings us to God, God just doesn't see us as neutral. He doesn't just see us as like, okay, they, they haven't sinned. No, he sees Christ's perfection on us. So that when the Father looks at you, he doesn't see your sin, he sees you in the perfection of Christ. And so he delights in you. He rejoices in you. He sings over you. He calls you his beloved. And so we see that Christ has died and he had suffered once to end all suffering. Let's keep going. Verse 19. This is where it gets weird. It says, In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Now, there's a lot going on in this text right here, but I just want to start by asking you a question. Who or what is ultimately responsible for the suffering in this world? You guys can answer out loud. The enemy, right, Satan, the devil, right? So we know that Satan is ultimately the cause of all our suffering. Now, I want to be clear. The Bible clearly states that you and I are responsible for our choices and our actions. We can't just go around doing whatever it is that we want to do and then get to the end of uh, our, our life and stand before Jesus and say, well, guess what? It's like, it really wasn't me. It was the devil. He made me do it. I, I can't take responsibility. No, cl uh, scripture clearly says that we are responsible for our choices and our actions. But the apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 6, he's, uh, verse 12, he says, so for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So we see that there, uh, we, sometimes we forget this, but there is a cosmic battle that is happening that is raging around us. Peter goes on later in 1 Peter, and we'll, we'll dive into this more as we go along. But he says in 1 Peter 5.8, he says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. It says, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And the Bible says, for the moment, our world is in the grips of the enemy. That Satan still has some influence in the world. Uh, look at Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 2. We're just kind of flying through these texts here. It says, and you... We're dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked following the course of this world. That highlights our responsibility, that we were walking in this, uh, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. It says, so it goes on, following the prince of the power of the air, 
the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So it's clearly see we see our responsibility also, but we also see the work of Satan in this world that is causing much of what we go along with. And I want you to know that if you are here this morning, you follow Jesus um, and, and you are living your life for him, that you will at some point become a target of the enemy. But what we see in this passage that even though this passage right here has been labeled as one of the most difficult passages in the whole New Testament, what we see in this passage is also one of the most triumphant proclamations in all of Scripture. Look back at verse 18. I want you guys to see this. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Christ was put to death, meaning that on the cross, his body died. His heart stopped beating. His lungs stopped breathing. His body died. But Peter says, but made alive in the Spirit. That even though Jesus' body died and it went down to the grave, his spirit was still alive. That's why we see Jesus, one of his final words is his father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And what's so fascinating about this text, and I want you to see this, is that Peter, he pulls back the curtain for us. You ever wondered when Jesus died on the cross on that Friday, what was happening between his death on Friday and his resurrection on Sunday? Like, was just nothing really going on? Now, Peter is saying there was a lot happening between Jesus' death on Friday and his resurrection on Sunday. And Peter now, through these, these, these two verses, is giving us a picture of exactly what was taking place. Look back at verse 19. It says, In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Jesus went and proclaimed a message of victory. That he had gone and he had conquered sin, he had conquered Satan, he had conquered suffering, and he had conquered death. Now the question we have to ask ourselves, who are these spirits in prison? And this is the big debate about this text. Uh, One view is that people who had previously died before Jesus, before Jesus came, people who had previously died and they did not have faith in God or Jesus, that Jesus went to hell and Jesus preached the gospel to them to give them a second chance. But if you look at the entirety of scripture, like we, we can't, like scripture does not support this view at all. Another option is that in the Old Testament, these were Old Testament saints people who had faith in Jesus, people who had died before Jesus come back in the Old Testament and Jesus went to, uh, to, to hell or to Hades uh, to, to pull them out and to take them with him to heaven. But I believe the most convincing argument in that who these spirits were is that these were demonic falling angels that God had kept in chains since the time of Noah. 
First, the reason why I believe that is that the word spirit in Scripture always refers to demonic or angelic beings. It doesn't refer to the spirit of man, uh, but it always refers to demonic or, or angelic spirits. So Jesus comes to these demonic spirits who are in prison, and he proclaimed victory on the cross. Let's learn a little bit more about who these spirits were. Look back down in verse 20. This is the second reason why we, uh, we believe this third view uh, is, is, is the most accurate way to interpret this text because of the way that the rest of the text reads. It says, because, so these are spirits that are locked away in prison because they did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. So <clears throat> these were spirits that during the time of Noah, they didn't obey. There was a boundary set for them, but they crossed the boundary. What is this all about? Why is this reference to Noah here? Well, what we know is that from the very beginning of time, a cosmic battle has been raging between the forces of evil and the forces of good, the forces of God. Like, we, we know this, right? Uh, if you look all the way back at Genesis, in Genesis 1, God created the heavens and the earth. And we see in the very beginning that God created this beautiful world uh, and he created a beautiful garden. And he created humans, the first humans, Adam and Eve, to live in this garden, to care for it and to tend to it. Uh, and really, this garden, was we, we talked about it several weeks ago, was the first temple. This is the place where God came down and dwelled with humankind, and all was great. But somewhere between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 3, we, we, we read in Scripture that Satan rebelled against God in heaven, and he was cast out of heaven. Jesus refers to this in Luke 10, uh, verse 18. He says, and he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And so we know that in Genesis, Satan set up shop on the earth. Everyone tracking so far? Okay, I'll take your silence as yes. Uh, <laughs> um, so we know we get to Genesis 3. Satan takes on the form of a serpent. And he goes and he tempts Adam and Eve to disobey God. And so Adam and Eve, they are tempted and they disobey. And then in Genesis 3, God comes and he confronts Adam and he confronts Eve and he confronts the serpent. Turn with me over to Genesis chapter 3, verse 14. And I want you to see what God says to Satan. Verse 14 said, The Lord God said to the serpent, He says, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. 
This is the very first whisper of the gospel that we get in Scripture. And what God is saying to Satan is that there will one day, there will become a deliverer, a Messiah, a a, a person who will come and crush the head of Satan. And Satan knew from that moment on that there would be one, an offspring of woman that would come and be a deliverer, a savior, a Messiah that would crush his head and bring it in to Satan's rule. And so what we see all throughout biblical history is you can see that Satan has tried to thwart and stop God's plan of redemption and salvation. And Peter jumps to Noah and he's saying Noah was one of those times when Satan tried to do this. Now, there's a lot going on here, uh, and I hope you're going to see here that Noah isn't really that cute little children's story uh, that we all decorate our nurseries with. So let's turn to Genesis chapter 6 and see what's going on here. So this is the story of the flood, uh, and this is one of those times that Satan tried to ruin God's plan. Look at uh, Genesis 6.1. It says, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God, and this is just a reference to demonic fallen angels, saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now, weird text. What's happening here? Well, this is what's going on. Um, Fallen angels looked at the women of the earth, and found them to be beautiful and attractive. And so they cohabitated with them and produced this offspring referred to here as the Nephilim. And these were, these were giants. These were uh, men of renown. Uh, and they were the incestuous, weird offspring of this just weird relationship. And I believe, and biblical scholars believe, this was Satan's attempt to try and to corrupt the human race so that the Messiah could not come as promised through the offspring of woman. It sounds crazy, right? It sounds weird, but like the Bible is, is very, I think the Bible is very clear. So during the time of Noah, these fallen angels, they pushed past their boundary. They overstepped by doing this. And ever since then, God put them in eternal chains. Uh, we jump to the book of Jude. The book of Jude references this. Uh, this is, Jude is the book right before Revelation. Look at Jude 6. There's only one chapter, so it's Jude 6, so it's verse 6. And so it says, The angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains until uh, under gloomy darkness until the judgment of that great day. So God, he imprisoned these demonic spirits and God rescues Noah through the flood. And eventually a savior does come, 
a Messiah comes, the deliverer comes, and he would die on the cross. And again, the cross was another time that Satan tried to thwart God's plan of redemption. Can you imagine that when Jesus died on the cross, Satan's sitting there thinking, I won. I could not stop him from being born, but I could stop him from enacting his plan of redemption because I, I killed him. And Satan has now destroyed the promised Messiah. Can you imagine like all of hell, all of uh, Hades is cheering and, and gloating and laughing that we have won. That moment that Jesus died is often referred to as the darkest hour in human history. Satan's gloating that he has thwarted God's plan of salvation and redemption. Uh, and, but in that moment, what Satan thought was his victory was actually his moment of defeat. That Jesus became victorious on the cross. That he went to these spirits that he has held and said, you thought you had won, but in fact, you have lost. You have been defeated. And then that Sunday, we see that glorious resurrection of our Savior from the grave. And it says that he ascended into heaven. Look at verse 22. Verse 22 says, Who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, with authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Church, Jesus has won. Like, is that not good news for us? Is that not exciting? Are, I, I'm, I'm really surprised you guys are not jumping out of your seats right now. Like Jesus has won. And Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. He is ruling and reigning. And even though you and I are experiencing suffering, and maybe we're experiencing suffering because of persecution, we know who is behind that. That we're, there is an enemy, but that enemy, even though he may come after us, we don't have to be afraid because Christ has won. Now, some of you are here today and you say, Tim, I am going through it right now, and I really don't feel like I'm winning. Like Christ may have won, but I really feel like I'm the one that's losing here. Uh, uh, and Jesus, he might be up in heaven and he's ruling and reigning, but I'm down here struggling and suffering. And if you are here today and you feel like the bottom has dropped out of your life, maybe you can't feel like, I don't know how I can take one more step forward. I want to share some encouragement with you this morning. Right from this text, the encouragement to you this morning is that even though you may be going through it right now, I, there is a promise in this text that Christ will see you home. Christ promises that he will see you through. Look back at verse 20. It says, Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience walked in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. He said, Noah and his family, even though they endured the suffering of the flood and the destruction of the world, God brought them safely through it. In ancient times, water has always been symbolic of evil and darkness. And what Peter is saying is that just like God saw Noah through the flood of suffering, that he too will see you through your flood of suffering. 
Christ will see you home. Christ is going to get us home. He's going to help us walk through the storms and valleys of life. Remember Psalm 23. We sang it earlier. That even though we walk through the valley of shadow of death, he doesn't say he's going to help us skip over it or be able to go around it. He said he's going to walk with us through it every step of the way. Now, I know you're here and you're struggling and life doesn't seem fair. And if we're really honest, sometimes we would say it just feels like Jesus has forgotten about us. But I want you to see, I want you to be confident that Christ will see you through whatever it is that you are facing. So how can we be confident? What is, how do we know that Christ will see us home? Look down at verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus. And what Peter is saying is that your baptism, your baptism is what gives you confidence and assurance that Christ is going to see you home. And I hope you get a better and more glorious and wonderful view of what baptism is this morning. Because baptism isn't just obedience to God, it's it's all of those things. But we miss this point that baptism is our sign that Christ is going to be with us and that Christ is going to get us home. See, at your baptism, what you are symbolizing is that you are putting your faith and trust in Jesus alone. Romans 6, it says that as you and I are buried underwater, that we are identifying our lives with Jesus' death. It symbolizes Jesus' death in the grave, which means that we are trusting in his death and his death alone for our salvation. But at the same time, at Jesus' death, he is proclaiming victory over sin, Satan, suffering, and death. And when we are under there, all of this symbolic action is taking place. And we come out resurrected to this new life. And we are partaking. We, in that moment, we are proclaiming that we are partaking in God's declaration of victory over Satan. Now, I want to be clear on something that sounds like here for a moment that Peter's saying is baptism that saves us. In fact, he uses those words. Look at verse 21. It says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. It seems like Peter is saying, well, something's being added to Christ alone, faith alone, grace alone, that you have to do something extra. Like it's faith in Jesus plus baptism equals salvation. That's not what Peter's saying. So he goes on to this next line and he clarifies it. He says, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism, it does not save you. Only faith in Christ alone saves you. But just like the Father saw Jesus' home in his suffering, our baptism is a promise that Jesus will see us home in our suffering. I love this quote from uh, James Dunn. He says this, Baptism is a symbolic expression of the heart's appeal to God. Baptism is a calling on God. It is a way of saying to God with our whole bodies, 
I trust you to take me into Christ like Noah was taken into the ark and to make Jesus the substitute for my sin and bring me through the waters of death and judgment into the new and everlasting life through the resurrection of Jesus my Lord. Jesus had to endure the suffering of the cross. But his suffering ultimately led to his glorification where he is now ruling and reigning. The reality is, is that we too are going to suffer in this life. But just like our Savior, we too one day are going to be glorified and we will one day rule and reign with him. This is the promise of baptism. This is the promise of the gospel. Maybe you are here this morning and you're suffering and the reason why you're suffering is because of your own sin. Maybe you have made choices and decisions and taken action against God's word and you are suffering greatly because of your own sin. But there's good news here for you too. God has made a way that you can confess and repent and for you to walk with him, and that he, in, even in that, will give you the grace to endure the, your consequences of your own sin. Maybe you're here today, and the reason why you're suffering is because, like, just the, this world is broken. This world has fallen, and God wants you to know this morning that he is with you every step of the way. And that while your suffering may be great, what God has in store for you is even greater. Maybe there are some of you here this morning who you're suffering because you, maybe you've had friends and family turn their back on you because of your faith. Maybe you are uh, being persecuted because of you follow Jesus. Maybe you're being ridiculed at work. Maybe you've lost position and clout and promotion for whatever that is. And let me just encourage you this morning, don't give up. Don't give up. Christ is going to see you through. I hope this morning that you don't hear this as me trying to minimize your suffering as me trying to saying, well, God's glory is greater than your suffering. I don't want to minimize your suffering. We would never minimize the suffering of Jesus on the cross, so why would we minimize our own? And I, we, I hope you don't hear this as just simple solutions to what you are going through, because I, I really don't know. But it, it is my prayer that in the midst of whatever it is that you are facing today, that you hold fast to this hope that Christ will see you home. He will see you through. So I want to close out with this verse from Romans. It says, For I consider the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And I believe what Paul is saying is the greater our suffering the greater the glory it is that we will experience. So hold on to this. Christ will see you home. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that you love us. We are grateful for this promise through our baptism that 
no matter what we may face, this promise that you will see us through. Father, for those who are here this morning who are there suffering and they're finding it difficult and hard to hold on and to hang on, Father, I just pray that you would just know it's not their ability to hold on and to hang on, but it's, it's your ability to hold on to them. So, Father, I pray that you would just open their hearts to hear your hope and your promise to them through their baptism that you will see them safely through the floodwaters of suffering. Lord, we just ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.